Hello and welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm your host, Lauren Evans, and today I'm riding solo for the show. I'm here at the Turning Point Conference in my home state of Tampa, Florida, and I'm just so excited to bring you some really great interviews. I have Kristen Dobson, who is the National Field Director for the Leadership Institute. She's going to tell us about what she's seen at the conference, a little short history of student activism on the right. And then we're going to talk, of course, about Taylor Swift. Then I bring you an interview with Sophia Fisher. She is executive director of Stop the Demand, and we talk about the human sex trafficking and just human trafficking problem that plagues the United States. But before we get into it, make sure you subscribe to Problematic Women. And if you can, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. Let's get to it. All right, welcome back. I am really excited for this interview. I am sitting here with an old friend, Kristen Dobson, who is the National Field Director at the Leadership Institute. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you, Lauren. So let's just start off. Let's define some terms. What does a National Field Director do, and what is the Leadership Institute? So the Leadership Institute is a um, 501c3 nonprofit. Um, we work with, uh, we train people in political technology. So one of the things that we believe in is that uh, political technology is philosophically neutral. So whether you are on the left or the right, uh, it all works the same. Um, but as a National Field Director, I work specifically with college students. So we have a network of over 2,000 groups, actually 2,009. Um, so those are groups, everything from Turning Point USA, Young Americans for Liberty, um, uh, Students for Life. So a wide range of movement conservatives and libertarians are in our network. Uh, we help them do activism. We help them host speakers on campus, um, with whether it be with on-the-ground gr- on recruitment help or um, funding. So those, those are just some of our resources. But we also do training. Um, so we train people in political technology, like I said. Um, so that's, we basically, we want to make sure campus activists are able to go off on their campus and actually change policies, whether that be a free speech code, um, a free speech zone, um, a, um, a funding disparity on campus. Um, we just want to make sure that the conservative voice is heard. So LI has been a cornerstone of the conservative movement for 40 years now, led by Morton Blackwell, who is just an amazing man and just cares so deeply for principles of life, liberty, everything the Constitution stands for. But I think one thing that's really funny about LI is that you mentioned that political tactics are politically neutral. Organized, campus organizing tactics are politically neutral. So I, I wanted to ask Kristen, why do you specify politically neutral and what are some of these maybe even leftist tactics that LI, Leadership Institute, has now used for for years and years now to organize and be effective on campuses. Yeah, so um, every summer we have a field rep class come into our building and we train them. Um, We train them on how to help students on campus. Um, And one of the books that we have them read is Rules for Radicals. Um, We preface it by saying that this is, obviously, Saul Linsky was a leftist. Um, He was not conservative, but as I said before, the technology is philosophic, or 
yes, the technology is philosophically neutral. So um, a lot of times conservatives are um, polite. Um, they were raised right, obviously. So <laughs> they um, they have a hard time doing a lot of these like in-your-face activism events. So our goal is to train our staff why it's important. Basically, get have them read the book, have buy-in to show like it works. So like if you clog up all the bathroom stalls and no hair, apparently get you get what you want. Um, that's what he taught us. So um, it it is just very. Uh, it's important that people understand that you kind of have to be in, in like, your activism has to be loud. Uh, you can't just stand at a table and sit behind it and wear your suit and be like, please join my club. Like, that's just, it's not going to work. You have to have a free speech ball. Roll that ball outside the free speech zone. Um, actually, like, make a stink on campus. Write, like, just like um, other organizations like the Heritage Foundation or AFP, they are telling people to, like, write to your congressmen. We write to your stu- your administrators your board of trustees tell them what is going on if your club is not getting funded you it's it's in your power to make those changes and a lot of i mean when i was in college i didn't know that so and i went to depaul which was extremely liberal went there because it was catholic plot twist it's not um they they were just like i didn't know that i could do these things and i just i love that i'm able to actually help students do that because we do make change every at the end of every year we put out a victory report um so even at the leadership institute's campus reform they have have like a, a, all of the changes that their stories have made on campus, and then my department, the campus leadership program, also has that li- a, a separate list that shows like this X happened, and then this policy was changed, and so a campus is more conservative. I love that. I love that campus reform is taking more of a journalistic outreach and kind of puts pressure on one side of the campus administrators, and then you all take the grassroots student activism and kind of hit them from both fronts. Well, Kristen, you and I have been friends for now almost 10 years. We uh, both have a three in front of our age. <laughs> We're old. We're 300 years old. <laughs> um, so we, we've been around since pretty much when the Obama... The dawn of time. Yeah, the dawn of time. <laughs> well, Obama's first term. So how have things changed in this student activism space from o- Bush to Obama to now then Trump? And now under Biden. Yeah. So I think that we're, we have, a, because of COVID, we have a unique opportunity. So when we were in college, um, and as I said, I didn't know these things were happening um, with activism and whatnot. Um, but I know you were very active with Young Americans for Liberty. So like we have pictures of you in our PowerPoint still with the <laughs> national debt. And I actually, I finally was like, we have to kill the picture of Lauren. The debt has gone too high. Yeah, I think it was 13 trillion at the yeah, time. Like, it looks so, it looks so outdated. It's embarrassing. Can we just, can you Photoshop to flip the three? in the one (laughs) but um so like as i was saying like you were super active with young americans for liberty i think that the ron paul movement at least from my perspective when i first started in conservative politics was very like gung-ho like students were really excited to get involved um and i think that that like extended throughout obama and then when trump took over it was kind of like i i felt at least that um students they I don't want to say lacked substance, but they were like, we won. Like, yeah. Yeah. Woo-hoo. it was more like a party like yeah. that. Like we won, like we're done where um, now because Biden is in office and with COVID specifically, students have seen how the university and the government can just seize control 
and just like not let you go outside apparently um, and things like that they are back to the, the good old Ron Paul days where they <laughs> want to do activism they're excited to make a difference they're excited to take on the university and that is just really heartening to see because I I mean I was getting worried <laughs> people our policy changes because people were like no like we're good and it's like we're not good you gotta keep pushing <laughs> well and I wanted to ask about COVID how do you do student activism when everyone was behind a zoom screen ah yes so um what we did was we did a lot more i guess speaker events Mm -hmm. so it was more of rather than like activism on your campus because obviously they're not on campus Mm -hmm. we did more just like host a zoom speaker um and the what our goal was so we are a training organization so we developed these learn with me was the idea um and the idea was you can't we can't really do anything right now so um why don't we train you up for when it's time to go back on campus so ideally all of the kids that have taken these whether it was social media how to promote your events on social media um how to um, host an effective activism event how to host a major uh, like a major public program so like an Ann Coulter or a Ben Shapiro I, we, they took the training, so I guess in the fall we'll see if that paid off. Um, but, I mean, I, I really think that it will. So, to answer your question, we did not do activism behind our screens because um, the campuses were not open. Why is it important for students not only to change their campus, but personally to get involved in activism? Um, I think that it gives people, and I part of sorry it gives them an identity so part of they're part of a community like even like at this conference like i think that being at conferences like this solidifies what they believe so then they can go back to their campus and spread the word so they they're joining community and doing the activism kind of i would argue gives you street cred (laughs) like i guess just whenever my staff members are talking about like oh we have our i did this activism event um like you can just see the pride in their face I think it really adds something to somebody's life when they're standing up for their values. You started as a field rep at LI and have moved all the way up from a field rep to then the next step is a regional coordinator and then all the way up to now the national field director. What lessons have you learned kind of going through the process and and earning your, your way each step? Yeah, so I would say I learned that hard work is really important, um, which is really (laughs) cliche. um, But that, like, it's, or I guess not really hard work, but having a good attitude. So honestly, if I have a staff member who has a great attitude but isn't really the best worker, I... I think that they are way better than the staff member who's a hard worker that has a bad attitude. Um, just being willing to help and fulfill a, like a mission. We, mm-hmm. we ask if things are mission critical and I, I just like understanding like what is mission critical mm-hmm. and um, trying to advance your organization that that's been one of the most important things. Um, also making sure that when you are networking that you're keeping those relationships as well as, um, I guess, not burning bridges with drama. I think that that's incredibly important. You mentioned this this free speech ball earlier in the interview, and this is just one of those things that is so interesting. Can you explain what a free speech ball is and what, how did it come to be? So, from my perspective, and I'm not, I'm sure someone will disagree with this, (laughs) in West Virginia, many years ago, um, I went on a campus and this 
it was uh, Marshall University. They were like, we bought a 12-foot beach ball, and we want to blow it up. And I was like, okay. And they're like, we have a free speech zone, and we're going to roll it outside, of, like, around campus and have people sign it. I'm like, that is the greatest idea ever. Um, I, have a, I think that they got it from somebody else in Young Americans oh. for Liberty, um, but... I still haven't heard anyone else who was like, I did the first one. Um, so I don't even remember the student's name, but it was so much fun. Um, and then that that came to be... So when we were in college, it was a wall. So yeah. it was a free speech wall. We Because there would be free speech zones on campus. Yeah, I literally constructed a, like, yeah, like like a with, wall. With plywood like, and, and hammers. Yeah. There's a video. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we... So the wall, like pe- the idea was like, you can say whatever you want. It's free speech. Um, but... It, and you normally had to get a permit to put it up on campus, oh, even in the free speech zone, because yes. it's a structure. Yes, exactly. So um, with the ball, you can roll it anywhere. So if you're, they say like, oh, the, there's an actual zone. The idea is you mark it out with chalk or caution tape sometimes. Um, you mark it off to show like, this is the line. And then you go stand on the other end of the side of the line and have people sign the free speech ball, hand out co- pocket constitutions and do those types of things. And then that triggers a reaction from the university. And then everyone, it's highlighted. Everyone can see like, this is ridiculous. Why can I say what I want here, but I can't say it there. That makes zero sense. Are free speech zones still a thing on college campuses? Um, Unfortunately, uh, I almost said unfortunately no, but actually unfortunately not. Um, it's unfortunate because rather than having a zone, they which is easy for mm-hmm. me to like be like, and this is how you fix that. Yeah. Um, they have codes. So like University of Michigan, they have their free speech code is that you can't offend anybody. <laughs> which I don't really know what that means. And I hope that it's changed. But as of two years ago, when we were looking into it, it hadn't. Like, what is offensive? Like, I'm offended by Blackhawks fans. I don't, like, like, that doesn't seem right. (laughs) Well, Kristen, you are a good friend, and you are a regular listener to Problematic Women. And I can say without fail, if I say something negative about... Taylor Swift, I know a Thursday at about 11 a.m., I'm going to have a very angry text message from you. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to defend Taylor. Um, she is the human Disney World. <laughs> so in Pixar movies, when you have, like, the little ties to other movies and there's little Easter eggs, all of her songs are like that. Like, you can listen to a song and be like, I remember that interview that she did, and that's what she's talking about. It's amazing. It actually comes from real life. Also, she has a song for literally every situation. We're never getting back together. It's a love story. Like, it's opposite ends of the spectrum. There, I think there's one that's just, like... Never mind, I'm not going to say that. Um, (laughs) Like, it truly, like, it's a vast array. There is rap. There is country. There is pop. It's literally anything you can ever want. Why would you not like that? And she's pretty. Well, and you defend, too, that she doesn't really want to get into politics, but she's forced? Yeah, so her brand, and again, in my opinion, her brand was always, she was philosophically neutral. Um, At some point, she started being labeled as a white supremacist because when Trump got elected, she didn't speak out. People started saying, like, she must be a white supremacist, which is radical and ridiculous. Uh, So I personally think that she then was like, I have to speak up. And I'm going to get canceled if I have the wrong opinion. So I'm going to protect my brand and I'm just going to go with what, I guess, Lena Dunham is telling her to do. Because that's like way easier. And I I definitely understand why she did that. Um, I don't really feel like, I don't 
unless someone's like really in your face about it, I don't really feel like I should not listen to their music because um, it might be, I guess they have other views than me. Um, but I also feel like she had, I don't want to say a limited education. I'm sure she's, she's clearly a very brilliant, mm-hmm. she's a beautiful poet. So like she's wonderful, but she, I believe she like became famous at 17. So like how much, and she wrote her, so like Tim McGraw song, what was she was 15 or 14 or 15. So it's not like she's been able to like sit down and go through schooling. She didn't go to college. I don't think she's educated on these issues. And now some people like you might say that she shouldn't talk on them then. But I think the cost was too high. She had to do something to protect her brand. And although I don't agree with her viewpoints, I just don't think that she is educated enough and I don't hold them against her. Well, things seem to be bubbling up again between Senator Marsha Blackburn and Taylor. So we might need to keep you on staff as our resident Taylor Swift expert. Yes, I will always defend her. (laughs) Well, Kristen, it has been a pleasure sitting down and talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on Problematic Women. And thank you for being a regular listener. You truly are a problematic woman. Thank you. I love being problematic. All right, well, stay tuned. Our next interview is with Sophia Fisher of Stop the Demand. But before we take a break, I want to give a plug for a great podcast, The Daily Signal Podcast. I know every Thursday, you look forward to listening to Problematic Women, and you're probably sad Monday through Wednesday and Friday when there's no new podcast. Must recommend The Daily Signal Podcast. It is a short, informative news headline podcast. You can get your news, and you know you can trust it because it's from The Daily Signal. We'll be right back. Well, it's that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And this week, the crown goes to Sophia Fisher. She is the executive director of the organization Stop the Demand. Welcome, Sophia. Thanks so much for having me, Lauren. So, Sophia, Stop the Demand is an organization that deals with human trafficking and wanting to stop it. Can you give us a little look into the organization Stop the Demand? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so we launched in January of 2021, so this year, so we're very new. Uh, our main goal is to push out educational content on human trafficking because we want to raise awareness to stop the demand for human trafficking. This is an issue that plagues every single community in the United States, and it's one that, quite frankly, we don't talk about enough. And I didn't hear about it at a young age. I didn't hear about it in school. I didn't hear about it in church. Uh, I was introduced to it by a local nonprofit uh, that focuses on uh, helping these women rehabilitate uh, and get back into society. Uh, But this is something we don't talk about. So coming face-to-face with that and meeting other people that help these women that, you know, were victims of human trafficking, I realized, oh my goodness, I need to do something about it. I cannot turn a blind eye to this issue. Mm, mm, No, that is so good. We hear so much about human trafficking coming from the border. Well, what is the issue of human trafficking in, you know, the average American community? Yeah. Usually the way that I break down human trafficking is that it encompasses three things. It's either forced labor, sex trafficking, or organ harvesting. And predominantly what we're seeing here most in the U.S. is sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Uh, And these two issues are often hard to spot. Uh, And and people would refer to it as uh, a hidden crime, right? And and it's tough in the work that I do in the organization, right? We work to push out educational content, but there's no type A trafficking Mm -hmm. situation. I mean, from 
the research that we do and the amazing people uh, that we work with, you know, they do incredible work, you know, to find out, you know, what do these situations look like? But it's not always the same, right? I, I've met people, I've heard stories that have been trafficked by family members. I've also heard uh, stories where people have been trafficked by uh, significant others. So it's not always going to look the same, which makes it really hard to tackle. So you mentioned that your heart was open to this issue. What was that conversation or what was kind of the spark that brought you here? Seeing it affect my hometown, I think statistics only go so far, but when you meet survivors and you see a face behind a statistic, that's when it changed for me. I'll be honest with you, Lauren, it is so hard some days wanting to push out educational content because it's so uncomfortable. And when I meet people and I talk about this, and even when I found out about it myself, it, it, it's so uncomfortable to talk about, but that doesn't mean we stay stagnant. We have to do something about it. So the reason I continue to do what I do is because I realize that this is an awful injustice, and I, the work that I'm doing uh, alongside with you know amazing people that I'm partnered with, um, you know it, it keeps me going. But there are some days when I don't want to do it because it weighs on me, and it's hard. Um, but I keep going because I want to be a voice for the vulnerable. Let's talk about just the name of the organization, Stop the Demand. What does that represent? Yeah, so like any industry, uh, there's going to be supply and demand, and human trafficking is in the legal industry. And so when we talk about the demand, that is the consumers. Uh, and then the supply would be uh, the people, right? Uh, and so when we say stop the demand, what we mean is stop the things that are fueling the demand. And what fuels this issue? And it's, it's a myriad of factors, right? Uh, the porn industry is significantly fueling this. Uh, there are drugs and alcohol. It's significantly tied to it. Uh, there are bad uh, cultural norms such as child marriage. These are so many things that are fueling the issue. And what we're looking to do uh, at our organization is talk about these things that fuel it. Uh, because if ultimately we can reduce the demand, there will be less supply. So what does a normal day look like for you working or stop the demand. Yeah, so we have a team of 25 plus ambassadors, and since our launch in January, we've been able to reach over half a million people uh, through our social platforms, which has been amazing. But a typical day for me would look like uh, researching and creating content to push out. Uh, we're our main on our main audience would be Generation Z. That's who we're mm-hmm. trying to target. Uh, in America specifically, the average age a teen is trafficked is about 12 to 14 years old, and that's generations. That's Generation Z. And what do we also know in the past few months? Uh, With COVID, uh, social media usage uh, increased exponentially. So not only do you have Generation Z flooding on social media, um, but you have traffickers as well looking to exploit technology due to the lack of societal structure that was created from the pandemic. Uh, So where we came in and what my heart's been in all of this is noticing that traffickers are looking to use technology for evil, uh, but we have an opportunity as an organization and as a team of ambassadors uh, to create educational content for good, to provide resources, to talk about what's actually happening, um, because what I've come into contact with and what I even thought about human trafficking before uh, isn't really what it actually is. Well, what are the warning signs that people should look out for when it comes to sex and human trafficking? 
There's a lot of red flags. Uh, what I always say is that human traffickers target vulnerabilities across the board. Uh, there's a saying that I heard a few weeks back, and it's traffickers don't discriminate, meaning that anyone can be a victim of human trafficking, uh, whether it's the LGBT community or it's the homeless population. Uh, these are people that are most vulnerable. Uh, the foster care system specifically, uh, it's estimated that 50 to 60 percent of them in America that are trafficked have come out of this industry. Uh, it's important to recognize those vulnerability points so that we know where to come in and talk about this issue. Uh, 40% of child sex trafficking victims in America are sold into the industry by a family member. Um, so what we're finding is that human traffickers, whether it's in a work situation like labor trafficking or sex trafficking, uh, human traffickers target vulnerabilities, whether you're an immigrant and you're lacking proper documentation and you have uh, your employer uh, saying and holding you in this position of coercion, right? Uh, there's so many situations in which human trafficking manifests, right? It's not always going to look the same. So when you say, what are the signs that we look out for? You know, it, it depends whether it's labor trafficking or sex trafficking. Um, but across the board, I, I would say look out for things that human traffickers can exploit. Mm. Uh, those that, that That's usually what would happen. This is such a you know, emotionally gut-wrenching topic. How do you, I mean, it's so admirable that you have a heart for this and, and you advocate for this, but how do you do this every day and, and stay, to be frank, sane? Some days I can't, to be honest. Uh, there are days when this makes me really depressed. Uh, I'll be honest, I have to have a good support system. Uh, family, friends, you know, going to therapy even, mm-hmm. right? But uh, it's all the Lord. You know, Him walking me through this. I couldn't do without Him. He provides me purpose and joy. So for me specifically, that has been able to get me through this. And then there's there's time and place, right? I will work uh, all day on researching human trafficking and talking to a survivor, right? Uh, but there are times when I, I need to put that away and I need to spend time with my family and my friends. And it's not that I don't care about the issue for a few hours, right? But in order to stay effective in what I do and to keep going and to not be burnt out, I make sure that I still have that time with family and friends and I'm laughing and it's still good, you know? But it's tough. It's hard. I mean, that is great advice for any career, but just thank you for the work that you do. And if any of our listeners want to get involved with Stop the Demand, where can they find more information? So they can head over to our website. It's stopthedemandproject.com. And if you go there, you'll be able to find so many resources. Uh, Our goal isn't to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're an awareness campaign, but we are partnered with incredible organizations in the fight, uh, whether that is, whether those are safe houses or organizations providing resources to law enforcement or other care. Uh, These are organizations that are all found on our website. So if you head over to stopthedemandproject.com, you can find all that, whether you want to donate or you want to volunteer, it'll all be available there. Well, Sophia, thank you so much for joining Problematic Women today. Thank you so much. And that'll be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do get your podcasts and have a great week. 
Hey there, Virginia here. I am jumping in right at the end to give you two very important Problematic Women announcements. Next week, we are off. There is not going to be a show next Thursday, August 29th. We're going to miss you all, but the following week, August 5th, we have a big announcement at the top of the show. So be sure to tune in August 5th because not only is it going to be a great conversation, but you're really not going to want to miss this announcement. And if you've not left us a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts before, please take just a moment to do so right now. We so appreciate hearing from you all, hearing your feedback, and seeing those reviews. That's such a help to us, and it helps us spread the word to even more listeners. All right, you all have a great week, and Lauren and I will be back with you on August 5th. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.